First Colossians number one, verses 15 to 23 on the preeminence of Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross in you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning. If I haven't had a chance to meet some of you, I am Jeff, one of the co-lead pastors here. Glad that you're here to worship with us this morning. Uh, I was just uh, thinking back recently to an experience I had uh, several years ago in St. Louis. I've been invited to speak at uh, local a Christian school in our community uh, at a chapel service. I was uh, going through the first chapter of Jonah with a, a group of high school students and uh, trying to really you know, bring out how uh, Jonah is running away from God because he's uh, listening to his own voice more than the voice of the Lord and you know, just sort of fitting God into what he wants to have happen. And uh, there was a, a Q&A time afterwards, and uh, they didn't exactly say this, but the students pretty much made it clear, like, uh, okay, forget what you just said. Here's what we want to talk about. Uh, so all the questions were about kind of uh, lifestyle and uh, morality-type uh, issues. Is it okay to have tattoos? Can I go to parties? Is it okay if I drink at parties? Uh, if I went to a state where it was legal, would it be okay for me to smoke weed? What about sex? How far can I go and not sin? And I remember thinking, this is why I'm not a youth pastor. <laughs> and I'm thankful for the people who are. But seriously, it's, it's not just teenagers, right? I mean, that's us, isn't it? We, we'd love to have sort of a, a, a checklist, boxes that we could fill out, tell me exactly what to do, what not to do, so I'll know where I'm standing with God. And, and I'm kind of in control right? Uh, I, I take ownership of how I'm measuring up and my own righteousness and, and how good I'm doing. And, uh, you know, we, we kind of sometimes play games like, uh, how far can I go before I cross a line that would, you know, like really get me in trouble with God? And, and in all this, we're really good at, at justifying our attitudes and our words and, and, and our choices and sort of, you know, sort of assuming or asking that Jesus will kind of baptize them after the fact. Like, here's what I'd like to do, and I hope you're okay with that. God, see you later. We don't realize, I think, in those moments that um, we're asking the wrong questions because we're putting ourselves at the center and, and sort of 
assuming that God will fit himself around us. Here, here's what I want, God, so I hope you're okay with me doing it. Or, uh, boy, God, you know what was done to me, and so here's what I'm going to do, and, and I hope that's fine with you. Or here's what's going on in the world, and here's my wisdom and my understanding and, and what everyone else needs to hear from me about that. Thanks. We're good. I think we're asking the wrong questions, again, because we're at the center. And as we come to this text in Colossians today, there's a question that, that I think we want to keep in front of us. Who is Jesus? Now, I know for a number of us, you're probably thinking, wow, that's a pretty basic question. Maybe it's not as basic as we think. For some people, for example, you know, Jesus aligns pretty neatly with a political party or policies or agenda or in opposition to certain people, and that varies widely by individuals and churches and denominations and all over the map. For some people, Jesus is, you know, just kind of a moral code. I'm following Jesus, which means I do these things and I don't do those things. For some people, Jesus is really just kind of tradition, right? Like, I go to church and, and we pray to Jesus because that's what my family did. The most important question you can ever answer is who is Jesus? Everyone has to answer that question because we can all very easily end up worshiping a self-made God, a God that looks often a lot like us, right? Like we end up creating an idea of Jesus that sort of fits really nicely with what I believe and what I want and what I'd like my life to look like and Christian, non-Christian, somewhere in between, doesn't matter. For everyone here, as we go through this text, the real question is, who is Jesus? Because I think that's really the question that the Apostle Paul is answering here in this passage from Colossians 1. If you haven't turned there already, you can open your Bibles to this letter that Paul writes to the church in Colossae about two-thirds of the way through your New Testament. If you want to use one of those black Bibles in the seat underneath in front of you, that's uh, page 1168. I have no idea what page it is in your Bible or uh, how many pages to scroll through if you pull it up on a phone or an app or, or whatever you use. And if you need a Bible in another language, we have some uh, at the back outside the worship center too. I'm both excited and a little scared and hesitant to jump into this text. In fact, uh, Joey was going to be preaching on this text, and I think this is the first time in a year and a half that we've been doing the co-lead thing that I actually pulled out the red button uh, for the senior pastor and said, no, I'm taking this one. Because this is one of the most glorious and profound texts in the New Testament and, and maybe even in the Bible. The description of Jesus here is very humbling to think about how to preach because Paul wants us to see the glory, the beauty, the sufficiency, the supremacy of Jesus in all things, for all things, over all things, and that ultimately our lives are not about us. It's about him. This litany, this picture of Jesus is probably the most concentrated description of the glory of the Son of God in the New Testament. This is worth memorizing. This is worth coming back to. 
and soaking in, when you're discouraged, when you're confused, when, when you're weary. Ask God through this to help you see him, to love him more, because that's what Paul is getting at here. And there's just kind of two main things that we're going to see in this passage as we see the glory of Jesus Christ. And the first is this, that Jesus is glorious because he is Lord over creation. Jesus is glorious because he is Lord over everything that has been made. Look at verse 15. Paul says, he is the image of the invisible God. Just, I know even if we believe that, can we just stop a second and be astounded at that again? The God who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one can see and live, the God who created everything, that God is seen in his fullness in Jesus Christ. What, what, is, what does all that mean? Well, the text here literally says Jesus is the icon. That's where we get our word icon. Uh, so we have some idea what that is, right? On, on your smartphones, maybe you have a little icon, a white envelope with a red M, and you click on it, and, and it opens up Gmail because it's representing what that icon is a, a picture of, a summary of. It, it's not a copy. It's not a reproduction. It is a representation of something else. Jesus shows us what God is like. He is the living, breathing embodiment of everything that God is. The full being of God, the eternal one, is seen in Jesus. And we're supposed to hear an echo of Genesis 1 here. God made man and woman in his image. Not only is Jesus the unique son of God and the perfect representation of his being, but he is the second Adam, the perfect Adam. Because he reflects the father's image in ways that we don't. We're made in the image of God, but we're not all that God is. Jesus is, and he reflects it perfectly and sinlessly. Paul emphasizes this going on in, in verse 15. He is the firstborn of all creation. Now, firstborn does not here really mean chronological order, like Jesus is the first thing that God gave birth to and, and then Jesus created everything else. That's an ancient heresy that gets recycled every so often that the early church condemned precisely because of this passage, as we'll see, because firstborn refers to status, it refers to sovereignty, supremacy, as, as Paul goes in to clarify by him all things were created, things in heaven and things on earth, visible and invisible. All things were created by him, and all things were created for him. That's the key here. In other words, Jesus is not a creature. He is the creator. He is the one who made everything. He was with God. He was God in the beginning, and all things were made through him, and all things were made for him. Everything that exists has come into being to reflect the glory of Jesus Christ, to display his greatness. There is nothing in the universe that exists for its own sake. From the smallest particle to the largest 
star in the galaxies, from the most boring school subject to the most fascinating, exciting thing you've ever seen or experienced, from the ugliest cockroach or spider or whatever it is that makes your skin crawl to the most beautiful human being you could imagine. Everything exists to make the greatness of God visible and magnified, including you. You do not exist for yourself, and neither do I. Paul goes on to explain that all things were created for him, including visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. Paul's reminding us there there are unseen supernatural forces at work in this world. And even they were created for Christ and are ruled by Christ. Do do you see the scope of what Paul is getting at here? The, The reach of Jesus' rule. All things, everything in the universe, visible, invisible, on heaven and on earth, Just stop and and reflect on that for a minute. Astronomers estimate that there are 100 billion galaxies in the observable universe. And each one of those galaxies has possibly 100 billion stars in it. This little box of salt, if you do all the math, according to Google, who knows, but supposedly there's about 10,000 grains of salt in in this box. Pour out this box, multiply it 10 million times, and that's how many stars are just in this galaxy of the 100 billion galaxies that God has created. Maybe that's a little too big for us to think of. Maybe maybe something a little closer. We have a hummingbird feeder in our yard, and and we get those beautiful little uh, ruby-throated hummingbirds, the green, green and red ones, right? They weigh a tenth of an ounce. Their heart beats 1,200 times a minute. And their wings beat 80 times a second. Twice a year, this tiny creature migrates 2,000 years nonstop over the Gulf of Mexico and then turns around and makes the journey back north in its migratory pattern. How does he do it? How does he know how to do it? Who created that? Jesus created it. For his glory. Jesus is not just the creator. He's the sustainer of the universe. Look at at what Paul goes on to say in the end of verse 17. He is before all things. Again, he is preexistent. He is not created. And in him all things hold together. All things cohere. One Christian commentator says... Christ is the principle of cohesion. He is the glue that makes the universe a cosmos instead of a chaos. And and, and we hear these principles from scientists that that if any one of a thousand different variables were off by the tiniest fraction, nothing would even exist. And Jesus holds it all together. You have somewhere between 15 and 70 trillion cells in your body. Each one of them, scientists tell us, is like a little complex city, a nanoscale New York, with every second of every day, cells operating on millions of parts and interactions. And yet none of them are machines. They do not run themselves. Jesus is actively sustaining and holding it all together. My lungs are breathing 
And my heart is beating right now because Jesus is actively making that happen in my body because he sustains it all by his own power. This earth that we are on is rotating on its axis and it's going to revolve around the sun and the sun is going to take all that hydrogen fuel and the fusion reaction and turn it into energy to warm this planet because Jesus is sustaining it. The mysteries of the solar system or of our human body or of a hummingbird are meant to point us to Jesus Christ who is Lord over all. What does all that mean? What do do we do with it? First, to be reminded that when you see Jesus, you see God. You see everything that God is. And, And that means we don't need to look further to figure out what God is like. We don't need to go to other sources or other inputs to to know what does God desire, what is God's character. We see Jesus reaching out to touch a leper in compassion because he's a God who stretches across boundaries and goes outside of his comfort zone to say, I am willing, be cleansed. He's a God who heals Of course, Jesus can also be direct and demanding. He tells people, repent, turn your direction, change your life. He says to his disciples, to us, follow me. Do you realize that Jesus is restating the first commandment when he says that? He is demanding that people make him the preeminent thing in their lives. Put nothing ahead of me, Jesus says. You shall have nothing before me. That's a claim to divinity. Plenty of gods who are powerful and holy and strong. This God is also loving and gracious and self-giving and other-centered. An enemy-forgiving God. Look at Jesus to see what God is like. And then second, Paul wants us to see that Jesus Christ alone is worthy of worship. He alone is worthy of our devotion and our love and preeminence in our lives. Whether it's later in the book where he talks about angels or whether it's saints or Mary or holy people or your parents or ancestors or admirable people or, you know, maybe more in a modern context, sports stars or celebrities or money or success or career or children. You can't worship any of it. None of it can be your source of hope and joy and confidence and identity. Don't give it your heart and your devotion. Worship and love and serve the one who made them all. And third, when we hear that about Thrones and powers and dominions and authorities. I don't know about you, but it can make me feel a little small and vulnerable. We need to know that beyond a shadow of a doubt, Jesus Christ has authority over it all. Whether it's supernatural powers, whether it's the powers and authorities and rulers of this world, they cannot do anything without Jesus' permission. Jesus rules over every power, every king, every authority, every system. So trust him. Can we trust him? 
if he can hold the universe together so that it does not fly off into chaos and nothingness, he can probably handle my life. He's probably qualified to hold things together for me. I don't need to fear what tomorrow is going to bring. I don't need to worry about hostile powers or the global economy or the future of our nation or the world because Christ rules supreme. He is Lord over this creation. It is all in his hands. I've been following Jesus for uh, going on 30 years now. And he has not let me down. He's done a lot of things I cannot make sense of. And sometimes it is hard to trust God in the details. But no matter what you are facing, no matter what struggles you are going through, no no matter what you think is going to tear your life apart, Jesus Christ is the only one who can hold it together and who can sustain you. There are no other saviors. But we can't trust Jesus with our lives without making him Lord as well. Because if Jesus is God, then when he tells us something, how do I, how do I say no to, to that God? You know, later on in this letter, God is going to tell me, put to death sexual immorality, lust, greed, envy, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language. Get rid of it, God says. If Jesus is Lord of creation, do I actually believe he has the authority, the wisdom, and the character to direct my life in a way that I need to respond to? Now, that sounds good, right? But let's be honest. It's a little hard to say that Jesus is Lord over creation when there's school shootings, and deadly tornadoes, and cancer. What we do is schizophrenia, bipolar disorder. That's part of God's good plan. Jesus is ruling over that. Why are alcoholism and other addictive behaviors at least in part genetic in nature? I mean, if Jesus is ruling over all of this, it, it seems like there's a problem with his design. In the movie Grand Canyon, Danny Glover plays a tow truck driver, and he's called into one of the rougher parts of the inner city. A wealthy businessman, his his car is broken down, and uh, he's surrounded by a gang of thugs who are ready to really kind of tear him apart like a pack of wolves as Danny Glover is pulling up. And Danny looks at the driver of this car, and he looks at the gang of thugs, and And he gets out of his tow truck and he starts to slowly say, man, the world ain't supposed to be like this. I'm supposed to be able to do my job without having to ask you if I can. And that dude's supposed to be able to wait by his car without worrying if you're going to rip him apart. Everything is supposed to be different than what it is here. That is New Testament theology. That's exactly right. We, We ache. We groan, we long, we yearn because there's this feeling that the the world ought to be different from what it is. It, It should be better somehow. We have this sense that things are not supposed to be this way. And that is the underlying truth that 
is in Colossians 1, that, that, that there is a crack, there's a brokenness in all of creation that runs right through us. Can I let you in on a secret? You are the most significant thing God has ever created. Because you are made in his image. And that gives you incredible value. But it also means when we went wrong, we went colossally wrong. And it flowed out of us to poison everything. Family and government and education and religion and business and communication and all of it are all affected. Now there's abuse and exploitation and greed and, and violence and vengeance and self-seeking and in us and in everything that we build. Systems and structures and laws and policies are all messed up because the people that inhabit them are messed up. And we're caught in this expanding cycle of sin and death and, and brokenness that underlies this passage. But, but there is also astounding universe healing good news here for us. Look in verse 20. God was pleased through Christ to reconcile to himself all things. All things, all things can be restored. It doesn't mean everyone will be saved, but it means God has made it possible through Christ that everything can be restored and reconciled. We can say no to God, but he offers to us in the gospel amazing promises of cosmic redemption. Listen to this picture from Revelation 22. The end of the story, the river of the water of life flows from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the city. And on either side of the river is the tree of life. And its leaves are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed. Do you see what, what God is pointing to, what he's doing? Jesus did not just stop at forgiving our sins. The, the future is no longer will there be any curse. There, there is a, a new city where the nations are healed and God is dwelling with his people and we're back in the presence of God with the tree of life. And, and God is doing all of that to reconcile everything to himself through Jesus Christ. Because he is Lord of creation, but he is even more glorious as Lord over new creation. Jesus is Lord over recreation, new creation. To reconcile implies bringing things back to what they are supposed to be. For example, if you go out in the parking lot right now, you could take a baseball bat and smash in the window of my car. And that would probably have an impact on the car and on our friendship. But let's say you realize it was wrong and you come to me and say, Jeff, I'm, I'm so sorry. I, I apologize. I, I want to pay to make up for it. In fact, I, I feel so bad. I'll just I'll buy you a new car. And I would say, go for it, friend. Let me hand you the bat. See, if it's going to be fixed, we have to work to repair the car and the relationship. We're 
reconciled, though, and things are brought back to the way they were supposed to be in the first place. It starts, all of that starts with Jesus' resurrection. It is possible because Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That cycle of sin and death and brokenness that we are all a part of, Jesus' resurrection is the first time in history that anyone has ever broken out of it. He broke the system. He is the firstborn, the the forerunner, the ruler of all who will be brought from death to life. And, And Christ has opened the door because he alone has power to bring us from death to life. He only can do it because of the incarnation. In verse 19, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All that God is takes on flesh in the person of Jesus and lives among us in order to redeem humanity. We cannot do it for ourselves because we're stuck in the system ourselves. We are part of what's broken. And all of that comes together in the the crucifixion in verse 20 by making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus dies a a violent death as a sacrificial offering and blood has to be shed because we are guilty. The price has to be paid. But he dies on a shameful cross because our other problem is shame before God. We're not just guilty. We are not what we ought to be. Jesus goes all the way down into the brokenness, into the mess in order to redeem us. In our home in uh, St. Louis, we always had problems with the kitchen sink. It it was just slow to drain, and uh, over time it started getting worse, so I I would pour Drano down it, and uh, it it would get better, and I'd pat myself on the back and say, oh, boy, I'm I'm really good at this. And then, you know, a week or so later, Amelia would come and say, "Uh, the sink is backed up again. So I'm like, oh, all right, sink, that's how you want to do it. So I go down to the basement, I take out the drain-out plug, I get the snake and the hose and I'm, I'm, you know, coiling that through and I'm pulling gunk out and I, I throw more Drano down there and I close it all up and <laughs> I showed that drain a thing or two. Jeff, sink is still not draining. Okay. Um, so I called a handyman friend at church. Boy, aren't I smart. So you guys solved that problem again. Rick comes out and he breaks up the concrete floor and discovers that a long section of drain line has completely eroded over time. There's like no drain left and all the filth from the kitchen sink is just pouring into the dirt under our concrete floor. And there's only one way to fix it. Somebody is going to have to go down into that wet, cold, nasty, filthy mess and clean out the filth and replace the heart of that drain system. And it's not going to be me. (laughs) Our friend Rick took on the job for an an appropriate monetary compensation. And and it took him a couple days. Rick's down in our basement doing all this work, and, and, and he's toiling away, but finally he emerges, wet and dirty and smelly and miserable, but triumphant. Because he has gone down into the mess that I had no ability to fix myself, cleaned it out, put a new heart in that system so that now it works. 
Well, then there was the other part of the sewer flies that also came up. It was like a plague of locusts in our house, and I spent a couple of weeks pouring bleach down in our basement to try and kill off. That's a side note. Sin ruins everything. The Bible says we are dead in sin. It means, among other things, that we are guilty and we have no power to save or help ourselves. Look at how Paul puts it in verse 21. You who were alienated, separated from God, and hostile in mind, opposed him, doing evil deeds. See, we cannot fix the problem because we are the problem. And in our saner moments, we know that. We know it's true of us. Someone from outside would have to go down into the problem to fix it, to reverse it. And that is what Jesus does He goes down into the depth of our sin to take it on himself and come out triumphant. Do you see that the scope of the glory of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ? But it also has to be personal too. See, I was was raised in a church-going family, but it didn't mean much to me personally. You know, I, I went more out of habit than anything. But when I was 23 years old, I I heard this message of what God has done in Jesus, and and it finally clicked. Not just that I understood it mentally, but I came to the point of realizing this is about me. There's something deeply, fundamentally wrong with me, and I cannot fix it. I am guilty, and I am broken, and I pray, Jesus, I have made a mess of everything. Thank you that you've come to save me and forgive me. Would you do that? I need you to be in charge of my life because I know I'm just going to keep making a mess of it. I don't even know all that that means, but I trust you. Have you come to that point? See, here's what happens when you do that. Paul says, you are forgiven. Maybe for some of you, you've heard that, you've known it, you've believed it, for so long that that maybe it's lost some of the amazement for you. We are alienated from God, but he has reconciled you to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Did you hear that? Holy, blameless. Who could stand before a sinless God and say, I am above reproach? That's a, a blasphemy from hell unless you are in Christ. Because Christ can say it, and if you are in him, it is true of you. It really is. Jesus took it all on himself, and you are forgiven. Believe it. Live out of that. Let that become your identity and your hope. And then second, you you share in his resurrection life, in his new life. Jesus is the firstborn from among the dead. And if I am in him, that means I am now alive because Jesus is alive. Resurrection does not just start happening when I die or when when Jesus comes back. It's a reality now. Now I am living out of the resurrection life that God has put in me by his son. And throughout now, the rest of my life, I appropriate that truth as I face sin and temptation and struggle and disappointment and I encounter evil and injustice in the world and I keep going back to Jesus and I say, help me live out the new life that you have planted in me by your power for your glory. 
Because you share in that mission of reconciliation that Jesus came to inaugurate. That means that whatever you do, whether it's taking care of a baby or changing diapers or mowing the yard or studying at school or getting to know your neighbors or practicing medicine or counseling or sales or replacing sewer drains, you are part of making this broken world look more like what God intends it to be. That is reconciliation. That, that's redemption. That's Jesus' mission. So where there's ugliness in your world, you go in the power in the name of Jesus to bring beauty. Where there's conflict, you go in the name of Jesus to bring peace. Where there's cruelty, you're called to bring the kindness of Christ. Where there's confusion, you're called to bring clarity and hope and wisdom. And we do that Yes, out of love for this world that's broken. Yes, out of love for people who are lost and alienated. But most of all, out of love and worship for Jesus. That is what fuels our mission for Christ. That he is worthy because he is Lord and he is glorious. And he deserves to be worshipped and known and magnified and made much of. By everything and everyone that he has made. You see the glory of Jesus here. He is glorious because he is Lord over creation and he is Lord over new creation and new life. As Paul says, that in everything he would be preeminent. May that be true of us. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you. Thank you, even though it's humbling to take on the task of trying to communicate your glory and your beauty and your majesty and all that you are and all that you have done for us in Christ. Thank you for this reminder. Jesus, sink this truth into our hearts and lives. And as we come to this table to remember and reenact be strengthened in what you have done for us in your death and resurrection. Father, help us to come to you with faith, in worship, in joy, and in gratitude. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.